Hey everyone, this is Chad Harms, pastor of Creekside Bible Church. Thank you for taking some time to listen to my latest sermon, a sermon about the triumphant entry of Jesus into Jerusalem and what it teaches us about who he is. The sermon will play in just a minute, but before it does, I want to invite you to attend our Easter service. It is our hope that every person will attend church on Easter, and so if you are in our area, and you don't have a church that you regularly go to, we would love to have you attend ours this coming Sunday. Our service will be at 10 a.m. It will last about an hour and a half, and it will be followed by brunch, a brunch that is catered by Wilsonville Catering Company. Our service will be, and has been in the past, one that kind of blends contemporary with traditional. It's kind of a cross of modern and ancient. And we do that in order that we can celebrate and glorify all the work that Jesus did when he died and rose again. And I think that this year is going to be great. I believe that lives will be touched. And I hope that if you are in our area, one of those lives will be you. So uh, go to wilsonville.church slash Easter. Learn everything you need to learn. And then come celebrate Easter with us. Come celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. Again, thanks for taking some time to listen to this sermon. I really do hope that it will help you to learn and live more fully for the glory of God. So I have a tendency to celebrate what Jesus does and not who Jesus is. And uh, this week, I went back and I listened to all of my recorded Palm Sunday sermons. So that's like 2011 until last year, 2017. And almost all of them are, I didn't know this, it was a little embarrassing, almost all of them are are pretty much exactly the same, which is really interesting because I have never, it's, it goes against my pride to go back and like take an old sermon and repeat it. And so I just came to the same conclusion year after year after year. And what was interesting about those sermons is that while the point is very similar, it's almost a point every time that's driven by, by you and who you are and what you ought to do. And, and this year as I was studying the Palm Sunday story and, and wrestling with its meaning and what it is supposed to say to you and I, I, can't, I just I figured out, I came to the conclusion that, that this story isn't about us and it's not really about even finding ourselves in the crowd and figuring out who we are it's really a story about about Jesus let me just really quickly get you up to speed we'll read this but if, if you're like what's the Palm Sunday story it's the story of when Jesus enters into Jerusalem at the start of the last week of his life before he would be crucified and then ultimately be resurrected a few days later. But it's the entrance into Jerusalem during and the beginning of that last week of his life. And there's crowds and it's an important story and we'll read some of that in a second. But I think it answers this question that we've been touching on over the last five weeks, like who is Jesus? 
And it's really interesting because we, we just finished a sermon series called Jesus Stories. And we looked at these incredible stories in the life of Jesus that point to really who he is. And if you missed that, if you didn't hear any of them, you can go to wilsonville.church slash Jesus Stories. You can listen to all of them. I think they're really important sermons. I think they're really important stories. But let me just give you the quick synopsis of them. I mean, we saw this story where Jesus was baptized And at his baptism, the Holy Spirit visibly descends upon him and a voice, an audible voice, comes out of heaven declaring Jesus to be God's son. That's a pretty crazy story. In the second story, we saw that Jesus was led out into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. And while he's out there, he fasts for 40 days. That's an incredible story in itself, right? But then after that 40 days, when he's really hungry and he's really tired, Satan shows up. And he tempts him and there's like this interaction. I mean, just think about that, right? Like there's this interaction between Satan and Jesus where Satan's like, well, what about this? And Jesus is like, well, what about this? And Jesus doesn't give in to those temptations. And, and the book of Mark tells us that there were wild animals there and that the angels were ministering to him. That's a pretty crazy story. And then we saw that he fed ten to 15,000 people, maybe even more, with just a handful of, of bread and a couple of pieces of fish. And it was, it was like flat, crunchy bread and dry, salty fish. And, and there's ten to 15,000 people there. And Jesus miraculously makes that little bit of food spread to all these tens of thousands of people. It's a pretty incredible story. And then and then we saw um, that, that Jesus was transfigured and we saw that Jesus walked on water and, and transfigured, I, by that I mean that, that like his humanity was, was pulled back and the disciples, three of them, got to see a glowing, bright, shining, glorious Jesus. These are like really incredible stories. And, and I remember when we were preparing for this series and I was talking to Matt who preached... Uh, every other week in the series, I said, here's the stories. And he said, well, you, you forgot one. He said, what about the resurrection and, and the crucifixion of Jesus? What about the crucifixion, you know, the part where he dies for the sins of the world? I'm like, oh, we're going to cover that on Good Friday, uh, obviously. But it's staggering, right? Like, he's walking on water. He's feeding people with nothing. He's glowing and bright. There's voices coming from heaven. And then, and then on Friday, this coming Friday, we're going to celebrate, commemorate him being mocked, beaten, tortured, and killed. It's a pretty staggering difference, right? In fact, at his death, there are people standing around and they're mocking him. And one of the things they say to mock him, he saved others, let him save himself. And it's this strange thing, right? I mean, he's running around the known world healing people and raising people from the dead and doing all these miraculous things and then seemingly out of nowhere, he's arrested, beaten, tortured, mocked, crucified, killed. And the Palm Sunday story, Jesus' triumphal or triumphant entry into Jerusalem kind of stands like right in the middle of this incredible life and ministry that's filled with miracles and this horrific death. And it teaches us about who Jesus is. Now, 
in order for us to make sense of this Palm Sunday story that we'll read in the book of Mark, it's important that you, that you get some background information, like what's going on, what leads to this, why is this happening, and, and, and first thing you need to know is there's this really interesting theme in the book of Mark, and it's a theme that if you're not paying attention to it, if you don't know the book of Mark, which you, you probably don't because it's the least studied in the church, the least read in the church as far as the Gospels go. I mean, if you, if you don't know the Gospel of Mark, then this is just a strange theme that, that comes out. And if you were to read it, you'd be like, why, why, why is this happening? And this is the theme. They call it, theologians call it the messianic secret. And it's this idea that throughout the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is constantly telling people and demons not to tell others who he is and what he's capable of doing. So like Jesus will heal somebody and then he'll say, don't tell anybody. And then Jesus will cast out demons and he's like, look, demon, like, don't let people know who I am. And it's weird because we, if you've been around church, if you've grown up in the church, if you're a Christian, you know that like part of what we think is a big deal is telling everybody about who Jesus is. And so Jesus in this book has, has tried in some ways to limit his fame and to limit the response to him until it was the right time, the proper time for people to really understand who he is. And so throughout the book, there's this messianic secret like, hey, I, I know that you kind of think I'm the Messiah and I'm doing these things and you might be right, but could you just keep that down for a little bit? But in Mark 8, 29, we begin to see that erode a little bit. It goes like eight and a half or seven and a half chapters where Jesus is like, don't tell, don't tell, don't tell. And in Mark 8, 29, we kind of see it for the last time. And, and it's at this really big moment. And from that point on, after this moment, uh, Jesus will begin to talk to his disciples about how he's going to die and about how he's going to rise again. It's like, it's like all the secrecy starts to go away. And in Mark 8, 29, it's this moment when Peter declares Jesus to be the Messiah. Jesus asks his disciples, but what, he's asking like, what are the crowds? What do the people say? Who do they say I am? And they're giving these answers. He said, what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Immediately after that, in Mark 9, Jesus is transfigured. As I said, the humanity is pulled back. His deity shines forth. Peter, being one of the people up there on the mountain with him, when it happens, gets to see his deity. It's like Jesus like, well, you started to understand who I am. Let me reveal more and more to you. And in fact, when they're coming down off of the mountain, Jesus says like, hey, I need to be resurrected. And the conversation for these, these three disciples that saw the transfiguration is like, what does it mean to be resurrected? They can't wrap their minds around the idea of this Messiah, this character who was, who was promised to save the Israelite people. They cannot fathom how he would die in the first place and need a resurrection, let alone in fact, based on the fact that they had just seen Jesus glowing and bright and talking to people who had lived thousands of years earlier. I mean, how is it possible that you would ever die and then Jesus just continues to talk to them about his death between chapters 8 and 11. He predicts his death four different times. It's like, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to die. And so as Jesus moves towards Jerusalem, towards dying, he all of a sudden is just more willing to reveal who he is to people. And on Palm Sunday which stands kind of between the messianic secret and the, uh, the kind of 
taking away of the messianic secret and the death and resurrection of Jesus which would reveal to everybody who he is. That he was the promised one who came to save. There is this moment in his life that we celebrate as Palm Sunday where the crowd understands or to some degree understands exactly who Jesus is. Even if they didn't understand who Jesus was in the right way and how he would accomplish his work in the right way. This is the story of the triumphal entry, as I mentioned, and we're going to get to it, I promise. I know I'm talking a lot before I even read the verse, but there's more background information that you need to understand besides the messianic secret. Jesus is going to come into the city, and if you were to read this, this story out of context, it's, it's like completely drama-free. And it's interesting, I say this every year, literally listen to all my sermons and I say it every single year. So I'm going to say it again this year and then again next year. But my big memory, and some of you are like, I know what he's going to say. I know because I've been here before. My big memory of Palm Sunday growing up was hitting beach balls around the auditorium at my church. It was this giant celebration. There was louder music than normal. Like it, it was just kind of free and fun before we got to the serious stuff of Easter, right? We didn't celebrate Good Friday, so it was like it was like well we have Palm Sunday it's really light it's fun you know we're not saying anything serious and then next week we'll get down to the serious business but when you read the Palm Sunday story in context it's just not like that it's kind of a weird day it's filled with tension and drama and intrigue and uh, mystery people just don't know what's going to happen so here's here's why at the time in which Jesus lived Historically, the Jewish people, for the first time in a long time, had a, had a giant and great expectation that the Messiah was going to come. And I briefly mentioned what the Messiah was, but in the Old Testament, the first part of your Bible, there was this promise from God that somebody would come in his name and he would make things right for the Israelites, but also for the entire world. So the Jewish people believed that somebody was coming who would be God-like and who would set things right for them, who would make things great. And that promise had been a part of their culture for thousands of years, but, but for a while it had kind of faded into the, the backs of their minds. But this group called the Pharisees, they were looking at prophecy in the Old Testament, they, they were looking at how important this thing was, and, the, and they had created this This expectation that the Messiah, the Christ, was going to come soon. That these things that were promised were going to happen. And then Jesus shows up on the scene. And it's pretty clear to a lot of people that he is the answer, right? Like this is him. But the Pharisees don't like the Messiah that they get. They love teaching people that the Messiah was coming. They really liked the idea of the Messiah. But Jesus stood in contrast to them in in so many ways. He tore at their legalism and their traditions. He had much to say about them and how they were ministering to the people. And and there was conflict from the very beginning of his ministry between this group called the Pharisees that were religious leaders and Jesus. And so instead of embracing him as the one that they had been teaching about, they hate him. And they try to catch him in traps with his teaching. And eventually, they, they begin to look for ways to kill him. They want to kill him. And then there's this moment that, that we don't see in the book of Mark. It comes to us in the book of John and in the book of Mark. I mean, in the book of John, what happens just before the Palm Sunday story, just before Jesus moves into Jerusalem, is, is Jesus 
hears that, that his friend Lazarus is dying. Jesus waits a couple of days, then tells his disciples, let's go to Judea, which is a region of Israel, and it's the region that Jerusalem is in, and there's this hatred for Jesus, especially in the Judean area. And Jesus says, let's go back and let's see Lazarus. And, and, and in fact, it's so interesting because uh, when he says this, one of his disciples actually say, like, well, I guess we should go too in order that we might die with him. There's this tension surrounding this moment. And so Jesus goes back and he ends up raising Lazarus from the dead. If you're at all familiar with Lazarus, then then you may have known that story. He ra- like Lazarus has been dead for days. The grave stinks and Jesus calls him forth and he rises from the dead. And you can imagine what this does, right? You can imagine how all of a sudden it goes from messianic secret to like messianic, I don't know what the other word would be like, everywhere, right? Like, did you hear, did you hear, did you hear, did you hear what happened? Lazarus was dead, I saw him dead. Then the grave and then he's alive and I hung out with him the other day. I mean, Jesus goes from like holding this thing back to say like, okay, it's, it's out there now. And the whole world is like going nuts for Jesus, the whole known world is going nuts for Jesus. This might be the Messiah, this might be the king. But at that moment, the Pharisees realized that that they're never going to win based on, on swaying the crowd, based on catching Jesus in a trap. They've tried everything. And so they get together and they say, look, look, we can't just talk about killing him. We can't just wish him to be dead. We gotta have a plan because we need to get rid of this guy immediately. The whole world's going after him. We have got to put a stop to this. And all the while, Jesus is moving towards Jerusalem. And he's moving towards Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, which is another interesting part of this story. Passover is the celebration uh, of, of Jewish people when of when God set the Jewish people free from the oppression of the Egyptians that had happened thousands of years earlier. He had done these 10 signs and wonders and miracles, plagues. He had, he had done these incredible things to set them free and he's led them out of the oppression and slavery that they were under and in at the hands of the Egyptians. And the Passover is a time when they celebrate this, but it's also a time when they they have expectation about the work that God's going to do and and the work that God uh, might duplicate in his future workings with the people and bless them again like he had when they were set free from Egypt. It's a time when the city of Jerusalem, some people say, would times 10 the amount of people in the city. Can you imagine Portland going from 1 million to 10 million? We kind of feel like that's happening with all the people moving here, but can you imagine like for the weekend, like, hey, now we have 10 million people here. It's a time when the Roman government would have had heightened interest in Jerusalem and they would have sent more soldiers there to make sure there was no uprising. I mean, this is an interesting time and Jesus is moving there while people are going crazy for him that have seen his miracles, that have heard him teach, and this other group of people is actively looking for a way to kill him. In Mark 10, 32, just near the end of, uh, of the section before we read the Palm Sunday story, it's talking about Jesus and his disciples, and it says, they were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished, so his friends, his followers, they're astonished, while those who followed were afraid. 
That's kind of crazy, right? That's a crazy little detail in the book of Mark. All these people are following after Jesus. They're going to Passover too. They're headed to Jerusalem to celebrate the same thing he is. The disciples are like, what is going on? We're going with him. And the people that are around him, we don't even know if they're like followers in like the sense that we talk about following Jesus. They're just behind him, right? They're kind of following the, the uh, procession. And they're like, uh-oh, we got in the wrong group, you know? Like, hopefully there's not an ambush. Slow down, honey. You know, like that's, that's the general feel surrounding Jesus as he enters into Jerusalem. And then we read in Mark 11, 1, which is the beginning of this story, the triumphant, the triumphal entry. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. And I'll stop there just to, to kind of set up the scene. They're coming uh, from the Mount of Olives, which is just across a valley uh, from Jerusalem, just east of a valley outside of Jerusalem. That's easy for us to picture, right? Because, because we live in a valley and you can imagine traveling east or traveling west across the valley and looking over. And so he comes across this valley and, and then he's up on elevation. And this is not important to uh, the, the part of the story we're going to look at today. But, but he's up at about a, 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 a height of about 2,500 feet. You can look down. You can see the city of Jerusalem. There's this incredible view of specifically the Temple Mount where the temple was located. Uh, Bethany is kind of on that slope there. It's one of the cities in Bethpage. The, the location is actually uncertain. But the idea, the progression that Mark wants us to see is that he's, that he's coming into Jerusalem with this beautiful view. And so you can just kind of imagine that. And it alludes to this, this first idea of Jesus showing everybody who he is. And Zechariah 14, 4 says, On that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem. This is not specifically a prophecy about Jesus, but we start to see an allusion to what Jesus is going to do in this passage where he's going to declare, You think you know who I am? You're absolutely right. And so the story continues, and now it gets serious. There's all these details, and these details are super important. Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying the colt? The, they answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus, they threw their cloaks over it. He sat on it. Now, the attention to detail in the book of Mark suggests that the details are really important, Right? I mean, there's some like very specific nuances, like it's, it's an unridden donkey, and it's in the city, and Jesus tells him to go there, and these people come out and say, why are you untying the colt, and it, it, the fact that this donkey is a colt, you know? I mean, all these things are really, really kind of interesting, and, and I think the real, the real trick of it is, is right in, in what Jesus says. Jesus says like, hey, if they ask why, here's what I want you to tell them, I want you to tell them, the Lord needs it. Now that's fascinating because in the book of Mark, Jesus has never called himself the Lord before. Some commentators actually say that nowhere in the book of Mark does Jesus call himself Lord. And that's not 
actually true. One commentary I relied on heavily in, in the series, the last series, actually said that. And, and I looked, I'm like, wow, that's really unique. Uh, Jesus uh, never called himself Lord, but he says things alluding to himself as Lord. But what makes this so different is that this is the first time and the only time in the book of Mark where he says, the Lord. It's pretty clear that Jesus now all of a sudden is saying, look, I'm different, I'm unique, I'm connected to God. He's been holding back this messianic secret for long enough. And now, as he says, go get this donkey, and he gives them this answer, he says, hey, I want you to tell them that the... The Lord needs it. Not just your Lord like in a, I'm, your, I'm your boss or I'm a master or whatever. This, I'm the. I am the Lord. I am the one who should be followed. I am the one who should be prayed. I am the one who should be respected. I am the one that God has promised. Now, we know that this is a donkey for Matthew 21 too, not from Mark, but in Zechariah 9.9, spoken 500 years earlier, this is what we read. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey. He's, what is he saying, Right? What is he saying? This is intentional. It's not an accident. It's not like the prophecy was accidentally fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is making this very clear declaration. I am the Messiah, the Christ, the Lord, the one that you have looked forward to. And when he gets back, you can just see, you can see that the disciples, they start to get what he's declaring, right? Because they take their coats and they place their coats onto the donkey as a saddle. It's as if they're saying, our Lord, our Messiah, our Christ, he can't ride on a donkey without a saddle. And so they give him this, this little moment of, of, of honor, of respect, of maybe even worship. And they play into what Jesus is saying. They get it. He's making a declaration. The messianic secret is no longer. He's declaring himself to be the one that we were look forward, looking forward to. And so we're going to put this on and say, we agree. We're going to put these coats on the donkey's back and say, we agree. And the fact that this donkey is, is unridden before is important too. Uh, because unridden animals... Unused animals were seen as, as appropriate for sacred use. Jesus is saying like, hey, I'm your Lord and my presence is sacred. Zechariah 9.10, just after that verse that I read, it says about that king who will ride in on a donkey. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Let me just tell you what Jesus is declaring in this moment. He's like, look, I mean, I just think this is what's happening. He's like, you've seen all of the evidence, right? You've seen all of the evidence. But in a few days, you're going to see me die. And you may question who I am because of that death. But right now, in this singular moment, I need to declare to you exactly who I am. I am the king whose presence is sacred and whose work is salvation. I am the king whose presence is sacred and whose work is salvation. And you say like, okay, well, do they get it? And, and, and the response is the famous part of this story, right? This is the response of the people. They absolutely get what he's declaring and they agree with him. In Mark 11, 8 through 10, he's, it says, many people 
spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches that they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed him shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. In 2 Kings 9.13, we read this. uh, They quickly took their cloaks and spread them under him. And on the bare steps, then they blew the trumpet and shouted, Jehu is king. This idea of putting your cloak in front of somebody is a demonstration that we believe that you are the king. In fact, it goes beyond that in some ways. There's symbolism. There's a reason that this declares we think that you're king. It's as if the people are saying, I am willing to be trampled by you. I'm willing to submit to you. I'm willing to entrust my life to you because you are the king. Jesus says, I'm the king, and these people say, yep, you're the king. And we're willing to to submit to you, we're willing to give our lives to you, we're willing to do whatever you want us to do because we absolutely believe that you are the king. Now the branches we see were palm branches, and we see that in uh, John's gospel. It's the only gospel where, where we see that they're palm branches, and Palm branches, that's an interesting detail that Mark doesn't give us, but it's a really important detail. If you were to go and and pick up a a Catholic Bible, there's a section in the middle of it, in between the Old and New Testaments, and we who are Protestants don't believe that they're scriptural, although they are interesting and and contain some important things about uh, Jewish history and, and really, I think, about how people have thought about God for centuries. But in those stories, we have this kind of family line of the Maccabees. They're, they're famous. And, and the Maccabees did an incredible things for the nation of Israel. But one of them connects specifically to the story and gives us the idea of how Jewish people would have thought about palm leaves and why they would have laid palm leaves down, if you've ever wondered that before. It's, and we read in 1 Maccabeus 13.51, on the 23rd day of the second month in the year 171, there was a great celebration in the city because the terrible threat to the security of Israel had come to an end. Did you hear that? The terrible threat to security had come to an end. Simon and his men entered the fort singing hymns of praise and thanksgiving while carrying palm branches and playing harps, cymbals, and lyres. You see it? The palm branches are a celebration that the threat is over, the threat to the city. And the Israelite people who lived during the time of Jesus, they think that the Romans are the threat. They think that the Romans are the problem. These are the ones who are oppressing us. These are the ones who are in our city and shouldn't be in our city. And as they lay those palm branches down, they are agreeing with Jesus that his work is salvation. Now what we understand as we continue through the story is they didn't understand the type of salvation that Jesus was offering. That's why just a few days later they're going to be chanting crucify him because they didn't understand the type of salvation. But in this moment... In his entry to Jerusalem, they're looking at him. They're weighing the evidence. They're hearing his declaration to be the king whose presence is sacred and whose work is salvation. And they're saying, we agree. You are the king whose presence is sacred. And we do think that you are the one who offers salvation, who brings peace, who ends the threat to our security. That's crazy. It's awesome. It's important. Hosanna, as Brandon mentioned earlier, 
It, it is a word that means save us, we pray. That was its specific meaning. But over time, the, the phrase had just come to mean salvation is upon us. And that's because in Psalm 118, 25, and 26, we see that word. And, and it was a very important verse to the Jewish people. And this is what it says, Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. And then notice how quickly he seems to respond and get an answer. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. And so it's this prayer, I need salvation. And then it's like, oh, there's an answer. The one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so over time, people were like, Hosanna means God, please save me. Grant me success. But I believe that you will, and I believe it's upon me. Hosanna. And so even in this word, this very famous Palm Sunday word, what they are declaring is your salvation has come to us. Psalm 118 is, is a Hallel psalm, and uh, that's just a, a psalm that, that uh, Hallel means praise, and it's this group of psalms that are driven by praise for God. I don't know if you know this, the psalms are... Are, uh, contain a wide variety of, of songs to God. And that's what, one of the things, we did a series on this not long ago, it's one of the things that makes them so cool, right? Like no matter what you feel and no matter how your life is going, you can find a song that connects with you and with your soul and with your heart and all of that. But the Hallel Psalms are these psalms of, of praise. And this Hallel Psalm, is the conclusion of a, of a subset of psalms called the Egyptian Hallels, where the people are praising God, or the author is praising God for, for saving them from Egypt. And we can see right at the celebration of Passover, this verse makes absolute sense. We, we are celebrating God setting us free from oppression. We are at Passover looking forward to God setting us free from oppression. And in the coming of Jesus, they quote this verse, which was common when somebody came into town. But they quote this verse, and, 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 and they're, they're recognizing that in him it's come. And they add to it. This is what's so interesting. Mark is the only one who records this for us. That they say, like, you know, he who comes in the name of the Lord. But they also add to it, blessed is the coming of our of the, in the kingdom of our father David. You see, the Messiah, the promise of the Messiah was in large part a promise that somebody would come after King David in King David's lineage who would reign on his throne forever. King David was, was like the king for the Israelite people. He reigned when the kingdom was at its highest. It had its most power. It had its most wealth. It was most morally sound and obedient to God. He was like the king when everything was in their minds perfect, the way it ought to be. And God promised David, he said, look, somebody will sit on your throne forever. And so the promise of the Messiah was in large part a promise that somebody would sit on David's throne. And the person that would do it would make everything good again, would make everything right again. And these people, as they cry out this Psalm 118, these verses from Psalm 118, and they add to it like, the kingdom's here. There is no doubt, there is no question that they are saying, Jesus, we know what you're declaring. We understand that you are saying that you are the king whose presence is sacred and who offers salvation, whose work is salvation, and we agree with you. We agree that that is who you are. And the people, I mean, they're just saying, they're saying the same thing. They're celebrating Jesus as king. 
His presence is sacred and His work is salvific, is offering salvation. It's who Jesus is. Now, I think what our tendency kind of do is to, is to focus only on the work of Jesus because we're selfish, because we're people, right? Like we, we take very seriously the Good Friday story and, and as Christians, we're like, man, it's so important that Jesus died for me and then we'll celebrate the resurrection and, and, and we'll, we'll sing and, and, and I'll preach and, and so much of it will be driven by like what it accomplished for us, Right? But we cannot truly worship Jesus and we cannot truly celebrate his death or resurrection until we agree with what he was declaring in the Palm Sunday story and what the crowd was recognizing in those moments. That Jesus is the king whose presence is sacred and whose work is salvation. If we just go, yeah, he died for me, it will just diminish that story. It will diminish the work of the cross. If we go, yeah, it's really cool, he rose from the grave because it means I can have eternal life, it will diminish the celebration of the resurrection. But when we view his death and resurrection through the lens of who he is, that he is the Messiah, the Christ, the Lord, that he is the king, that his presence is sacred because he is in fact God, And that he came and his whole life was driven by providing us salvation. The good and the bad, the struggles and the hurts. And the celebrations was all driven by our salvation. Then, as we pause to reflect on how he was crucified, it makes much more sense. I mean, how could could our king whose presence is sacred, how could he possibly be nailed to a cross? For the crowd, they just said, eh, guess it wasn't him. That was kind of the reaction. Guess we got that wrong. For us, we know it's true. We know they're right. And as people stick a crown of thorns on his head and he bleeds from his brow, and as they whip his back to the point that it's just a disgusting mess. And as they beat him with sticks and stick nails into his hands, it only can be remembered right if we look at him and go, that is my king whose presence is sacred. And so I hope this morning that we'll just recognize with the crowd that Jesus is right as he declares himself to be the king. His presence is sacred and his work is salvation. I hope we'll just say he's right, he's right, he's right. This sermon isn't about what you need to do. This sermon isn't about you and, and, and how you can connect to the crowd. I've done that like for six years, you know, and how you can see yourself and which one are you and are you fickle and how you respond to Jesus and all that. This is about Jesus. This is about Jesus and who Jesus is. And I hope that you'll respond to who Jesus is, not because some pastor stands in front of you and says, you need to respond better to who Jesus is, because you recognize who Jesus is. My hope for this sermon is that you will recognize Jesus as the king whose presence is sacred and whose work is salvation. And you will worship him in light of that, and you will celebrate this week, Holy Week, in light of those truths.
He deserves all of our worship. He deserves all of our honor. He deserves all of our glory because of who he is. Will you pray with me? Lord, Jesus, we're not singing this, but I'm thinking about it, Lord. The song that says, amazing love, how can it be that you, my king, would die for me? Lord, that's, that's what this, I think this day represents, who you are. And, and, and it stands in such incredible contrast to what you would do when you willingly allowed for them to kill you. Because in no way, Jesus, should you have died for me. God, I should have died for you, but I have no ability to do that. God, I should have been killed because I've been disobedient to you. But instead of all of that, you chose to give your life for me and for us. And that's incredible. And I pray, God, that if nothing else, that, that every person who's heard this sermon would at least recognize, God, that you declared yourself to be the king whose presence is sacred and whose work is salvation. They would at least know that that is the declaration that you made as you entered into Jerusalem. But I pray even more than that, even beyond that, God, that people wouldn't just recognize that truth, but, but God, who you are would actually change their lives. They would agree with your declaration, God. And as they agree with, their, with your declaration, I pray, God, that their lives would align to the reality of who you are. God, so often we, we just are like, Oh yeah, I think that's Jesus, but we're not changed by it. And when we see you for who you really are, and, and God, the, the secret of your Messiahship is torn down, it should change everything about how we respond to you. And I pray that it would, Jesus. Jesus, thank you for entering Jerusalem even though you knew that you would die. You knew what you would suffer. You knew how horrible it would be. It's incredible. I pray these things only because of the sacrifice that you made, allowing me to come to you and to ask things. And I pray these things in your holy name. Amen.